Well, I turn now to our scripture lesson for the sermon this evening. As we continue doing just a couple of supplemental sermons here, really winding things up in regard to the feasts of the Lord. And this is going to be again in connection with Passover, but in a particular way in which Christ fulfills the imagery of Passover as well as one particular statement made by God's prophet, the friend of God, Abraham, in Genesis 22. So I turn now to John chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 29 through 34. And this is the word of the living God, as he gave to the Apostle John, and as John himself records, Jesus taught that the Holy Spirit would come and bring to their remembrance, the disciples' remembrance, all of the things that Jesus taught and much besides. And so we have here not just uh, John's uh, best recollection of some things that might have happened that he would have witnessed. We do know that John himself was a disciple of John the Baptist, and so he may well have been there to hear John the Baptist uh, declare what we're going to read tonight. Uh, but this wouldn't just be John, the son of Zebedee's best recollection of that. This is the infallible recording of God's word. So uh, God has superintended this uh, so that it is recorded without error. So we need now read John chapter 1 verses 29 through 34. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And that ends the reading of God's holy word for us this evening. As the time approached that Jesus would offer himself up as a sacrifice for his people, our Lord directed his disciples to prepare the Passover. So I'm going to talk first tonight about the preparations for the Passover, and then I'm going to talk particularly about the Passover lamb a little bit, and how that relates ultimately will wind up, how that relates then to this statement that we read this evening by John, John the Baptist saying, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus directed his disciples to prepare the Passover, as we read about in Luke 22, for example, it would, this would be the last time that he was going to celebrate that Old Covenant sacrament, while at the same time he was instituting the New Covenant sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And there have been other times that we've gone through how they went, the steps that uh, were ordinary for a Passover and when it was that Jesus instituted the different uh, portions of the Lord's Supper. But the Passover, as they prepared for it, was a particular celebration. 
a peculiar celebration, if you will. It was the first of the three annual observances that require the presence of all adult male Israelites, as we've noted recently in this series on the Feasts of the Lord. So the uh, all adult male Israelites were required to go to the place where the Lord uh, would put, would place his name, where he chose to put his name. When the people of God were in the wilderness, uh, that of course was wherever God chose for Israel to dwell at that time, when the, the a pillar of smoke by day and a fire by night would lead them and then it would rest in a particular place and it would rest then over the tabernacle when they uh, set it up. That would be the place, of course, where the people would come. And of course, they were already gathered. They were all in one place. But then God told them when they got to the promised land, he would place his name in a particular place and that was where they were to go, to a central sanctuary. And all the men of Israel were required to come for these three feasts where the Ark of the Covenant would be. Places like Shiloh and Gibeah were temporarily those uh, the place where the Lord placed his name in terms of where the Ark resided. But lastly, and officially, it was Jerusalem where Solomon would build a temple to the Lord. The other two observances where all of the adult males were required to be at that central sanctuary was the Feast of Weeks, also known as Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. Again, we've noted this recently as we talked about each of those individual feasts. So each of those three feasts had a threefold meaning. And we did talk something about these each time we talked about the feast, but here I'll just kind of uh, wrap them together. They each pointed to the season of the year and the fruits of the land uh, at that time, that there was produce at that time. Of year, and we noted that Passover and Pentecost, in particular, were times of offering of first fruits of harvests, and of course, then the Feast of Tabernacles was a, also known as the Feast of Ingathering. It was the Feast of the Fall Harvest, and these were each uh, so these were each uh, recognitions of God's fruitfulness to the people throughout the year. They were times of thankfulness for the harvest. But they also were each a remembrance of God's deliverance of Israel from bondage in Egypt. And of course, that's the major focus. Passover commemorated the deliverance from the slaying of the firstborn. And it was connected closely with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was celebrated for the seven days following Passover. That commemorated the hasty departure from Egypt. And we noted about how by the time of Jesus, the Feast of Passover and unleavened bread were basically used interchangeably, the terms were. But technically Passover is the 14th of the month of Abib, and then the following seven days uh, were the days of unleavened bread. The Feast of Weeks, seven weeks later, a week of weeks later, uh, remembered God's provision of food in the wilderness and the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. The Feast of Booths looked back to Israel's time in the wilderness and also was a feast of ingathering. Third, so there was, there's the, the connection to the fruits of the land. There's the connection looking back to deliverance from Egypt and the time in the wilderness. And then third, each of these feasts had what we would call a typological meaning. That is, they, they pointed forward, they foreshadowed something that God was promising to do. Passover points to our need for substitutionary atonement because it required the blood of 
the lamb, that the wrath of God would pass over that home. For someone to stand in our place, whose shed blood averts death, the wages of sin, that's what what Passover points forward to. So Passover points, of course, to what we can see fulfilled as we look back in history from our vantage point to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We won't be covering the other two in detail, but just note Pentecost was typological of God's gathering of his elect to himself, as we talked about recently, out of the world. And uh, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles was the the type of the transfer from our uh, time in this world, symbolized by the wilderness, to the consummated kingdom. Uh, It's uh, looking forward to the final in-gathering of all of God's people. So we see the peculiarities of the Passover. It pointed to the fruits of God's provision in his land. It pointed back to deliverance from Egypt. It pointed forward to deliverance in Jesus Christ. The Passover was special, therefore. It was the great springtime festival when Jesus and his disciples headed for Jerusalem. You know, you watch movies depicting this and one of my little pet peeves you've heard me say before about a lot of Bible movies is that it, it looks like there's no food anywhere. I mean, you've got food in people's houses, but where does it grow? Every, every time you see them, they're in a the desert. And uh, you notice that, that Moses is, is uh, uh, grazing the flocks. He's feeding the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro. What are they feeding on? There's nothing for goats and, and lambs to eat out there, goats and sheep to eat. There's... They're just rocks and sand. A couple little scrubby bushes here and there, but uh, nothing that could feed a substantial flock. And then you'll see these movies where Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem and there's hardly a blade of grass growing anywhere. And in reality, this was a fertile time of year. This is when they would have seen the springtime beginning, the nature awakening around them, the, the winter crops, the winter wheat and barley, these things that have been planted in the fall, are growing up green around them. And some of it, of course, is even ready to harvest. The first day of the week following Passover, the day on which Jesus rose from the dead, was the day on which the first fruits of the spring harvest were offered in the temple. It was also the springtime, as it were, of Israel as a nation. Passover was to ancient Israel uh, something like what the 4th of July is to the United States today. It was a remembrance of when they were formed officially as a nation. The national birthday. It pointed forward then to the coming of the true Israel. To Jesus Christ and the Passover shedding of the blood of the Lamb of God. Now we should note that the first Passover was celebrated a little bit differently than all others. And we did talk about this again a bit, but I'll remind you. At the first Passover, an unblemished lamb or goat kid was to be selected on the 10th day of the month of Abib, also known later as the month of Nisan, the the first month on the ceremonial calendar. In fact, as we read uh, last week, I believe it was, or the week before, it was... uh, That was the time when God actually told the people, from this point on, this will be the beginning of months to you. 
And so the head of each household would uh, select on the 10th of that month a lamb or a kid of the goats. It was slain then on the 14th. The Hebrew literally says between the two evenings. So each household would slay, would kill the lamb or the goat uh, at the time that's basically what we would call uh, the dusk, the time kind of between the actual sunset and full dark. Its blood was spread on the lintel and the doorposts of each house where the meal was to be eaten. And all who were circumcised were to eat the lamb or the kid with the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs dressed in preparation for the exodus. And of course the, the women in the family would have joined them uh, along with the circumcised men. And they had to remain in these houses until the angel of death had passed over. So of course we noted before that's literally why it's called Passover because the angel of the Lord who came to uh, kill the firstborn of Egypt the Israelites would not have been spared that. They didn't deserve being spared it. They were sinners themselves as well. But they were spared it only if they were in the house where the blood of the lamb covered the doorposts and lintel. And they had to remain in that house until the death that was spreading through Egypt was finished. In every Passover thereafter, things were a little bit different. The lamb was selected on the 10th as in the original Passover, And then on the 14th, it was to be brought to the temple and sacrificed in the afternoon. So, uh, of course, they couldn't wait until the time between the two evenings when sunset and it got full dark because think of how many lambs that had to be killed in the temple. Uh, You wouldn't have had time to do it. So, basically, all afternoon, they would have been preparing for Passover and these uh, lambs would have been brought into the temple And so all afternoon was spent in the killing of these lambs and their blood was offered with other offerings on the altar in the temple, not spread on the doorposts and lintel of the houses where it was to be celebrated, but spread on the base of the altar. And then the lamb was taken to the individual homes and roasted. We'll return to this consideration of the lamb shortly here, but uh, just to note what happened thereafter, the meal could be shared in any dwelling, and the participants did not have to stay there all night, as in the first case. Of course, in the first case, if you didn't stay there all night, you were uh, subject to being killed by the angel of death or losing the firstborn of your household. But, of course, in the remembrance, it didn't have to be that way. So think of Jesus and his disciples after they had had the, the Passover meal, they went out back to the Garden of Gethsemane where they stayed at night. So there were differences between the actual event, the original Passover, and the feast done in remembrance. But key to our understanding of the Passover our Lord celebrated was that it was a remembrance of deliverance from slavery and death. Now fulfilling what it pointed to, Jesus commands his disciples then to do this in remembrance of him, not of deliverance from Egypt, but remembrance of Jesus. Like the remembrance of the Egyptian Passover, it must have the same essential elements and be observed in the way instituted by the Lord, but the circumstances are going to be a a bit different. Because we're doing it in remembrance rather than in the original case. 
For example, we're not tied to the Old Testament ceremonial calendar. Jesus did it at Passover. We don't have to do it at Passover. We can celebrate the Lord's Supper with greater frequency. And and much of the evidence we have from the early church is that they customarily did it every Lord's Day. That's not to say that we're required to do that, but just to note that there's no limit on the frequency. A last thing to note about the Passover is that great care was taken in preparing it. That's why we see the concern of Jesus' disciples when they asked him, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? We read that last week. There were great public preparations made also. The previous month, bridges and roads were were repaired. The 15th of the month of Adar was a great work day when people helped in these repairs. Could you imagine that? We see all the road construction going on here in, in the summertime. If Every time you needed a little road construction, there was like a day, sort of like when we sometimes have a church work day where we come here and get everything cleaned beyond the ordinary cleaning that might be done and trim the trees and things like that. And if you could imagine everybody having a community work day uh, or work week maybe and we get out every every year once a once a year and we repair all the streets <clears throat> might save some taxpayer money if we did it that way I don't know um, numbers 5 sets forth a ritual test for adultery that a jealous husband can have his wife do and the custom came about that this was also done at that time of year in that month before Passover The 15th of Adar was the traditional day to bore a hole in the ear of the one who volunteered to remain in servitude. Numbers 19 sets forth the ritual for purifying the sanctuary, which involved slaying and burning a red heifer. And that would be done on the 15th of Adar as well. The month prior to Passover was also when the graves and tombs were whitewashed especially around Jerusalem, so that no one would be defiled by inadvertent contact with the grave. Now, the law of God, of course, is just that it's contact with a dead body, but we know how the Pharisees always tried to to make the rules a little more stringent for people so that they didn't come close to violating the law of God. And and in that uh, case, out of that uh, mindset, uh, came this practice of whitewashing tombs and graves. So each Passover, as you came to Jerusalem, you could see the tombs shining in the sunlight. That makes Jesus' statements in Matthew 23-27 clear when he compared the Pharisees to whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. The tithes of flocks and herds were made two weeks before Passover. And the temple treasury chests were open and publicly emptied. All this done in preparation for the Passover celebration. It's at this time the people customarily went through ceremonial purification themselves. As John 11.55 tells us, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Similarly, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.28 tells us, Before the Lord's Supper, let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
So as the Passover foreshadowed the offering up of the Lamb of God as the Lord's Supper parallels Passover, now to be done in remembrance of Jesus, uh, just as great care was taken in preparing the Passover, so must great care be taken in preparing for the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8 reminds us, cleanse out the old leaven. This was another thing that was done often in preparation for the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover before it, is that people would sweep their entire house out, that there would be no chance of leaven being in the house. And Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Jesus and his disciples, as all godly Jews did in their day, uh, took great care in preparing for the Passover meal. God's word commanded such care. The choice of the lamb was an important part of that. So we'll come back to that at this point. The post-exile practices had made it customary that a lamb would be used, and so no longer was it ordinary that a kid of the goats might be used. It would almost always be a lamb, but, but also the Hebrew word for lamb could cover either one. But in Jesus' day, we note that it was customarily a lamb. It had to be a male lamb, a year old, according to Exodus 12.5. Literally, the Hebrew says, a son of a year, uh, which many scholars point out, more likely means that it's a lamb in the first year of its life. The tradition that developed was that he would be anywhere from eight days old to a year old. He had to be free from all blemishes, physically sound. The lamb was to be eaten by a company of no less than 10 and up to 20 people. In the case, of course, of the Last Supper, it was 13. It was Jesus and the twelve. Next, the lamb was taken to the temple. Luke 22.8 tells us Peter and John did that in preparation for the Last Supper. So they would, would have made their way among the crowds up to the temple. There would be two men from every Paschal party anyway. In this case, it was Peter and John. The slaying of the Paschal lambs began around what we would call 3 p.m. The representative from each company to eat the Passover would kill the lamb. Some sources say it was a Levite or a priest who did it, but in either case the men from the, from the company, often a father and son, would go with the lamb and the lamb would be slain in the temple. And uh, so it's very likely that either Peter or John killed the lamb for Jesus' last supper. But a priest would be there and he would catch the blood of that lamb in a bowl. And then it would be passed up through a chain of priests and Levites up to a priest at the altar who would throw that blood on the base of the altar. And again, we noted not long ago about what a, a bloody thing this would have been. What a, what a horrific thing to witness all of this death and all of this blood and this blood being poured on the altar. And that was on purpose. It, it sounds horrific and it's supposed to be because that reminded the people of Israel every year, what their sins demanded. What an offense sin is to God. So while that was happening, the Levites would be singing Psalms 113 through 118, in a a loop as it were. 
known as the Egyptian Hallel, or the common Hallel, because it was commonly sung at the times of these three great feasts that commemorated liberation from slavery in Egypt. Each time that these uh, psalms were being sung, as each time a line of the psalm was sung, the people in the temple would shout hallelujah, praise the Lord. The ancient Jewish writings claimed that these psalms pointed to five things. This is interesting because this was in the mindset when Jesus and his disciples were celebrating the Last Supper. The coming out of Egypt, that's obvious. The dividing of the sea, that's part of the liberation from Egypt, of course. The giving of the law, the resurrection of the dead, which the Sadducees didn't like to hear much, and the lot of the Messiah. So it was understood by rabbis even before the coming of Christ that these psalms were about, in part, the Messiah. The Jews in Jesus' day knew they were singing about the Messiah each Passover. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Those are obvious references to the Messiah. And Jesus was singing of himself. Because these psalms were not only sung by the Levites in the temple, but every company who was celebrating the Passover would sing Psalms 113 through 118 that night. So the hymn that Jesus and his disciples sing in Matthew 2640 is certainly one of those psalms, or a collection of those psalms. It's either Psalm 118 or possibly 116 through 118. While still in the temple, the lambs were hung from staves that could be then carried back by the, the men, the two men who went, would carry the staff between them with the lamb on it. The entrails were taken out, and cleansed, and placed on the altar of burnt offering, and then the lamb was taken to be roasted in the place where it's going to be eaten. As day declined, then the rest of the company would gather. Jesus would have made his way with his other disciples uh, to the upper room where Peter and John would have been preparing this meal already. Jerusalem would have been crowded as the one to whom Passover pointed was among the throngs. He celebrated the Passover meal with the twelve. Now an important detail we have noted is that Jesus set apart a portion of this meal and commanded that it be done by his disciples, no longer in remembrance of the exodus or the deliverance from Egypt, but in remembrance of him. Specifically in remembrance of his broken body and shed blood, which brought deliverance from a more profound slavery than being enslaved by the Egyptians and a more dreadful death than the slaying of the firstborn. Jesus delivers all in him from slavery to sin and from the eternal death of hell. In the first Passover, Israel's firstborn were spared because God would give his firstborn son. Now, you might be wondering, well, what does all this have to do with what we just read? I haven't talked yet at all, except in one passing reference, I think, to the passage from John chapter 1, where in verse 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he tells all who are there to listen, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Back in Genesis 22, the Lord had commanded Abraham to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. But then we know that familiar story, that familiar account, that when Abraham was about to obey the Lord, that the Lord stayed his hand. Now on the way up the mountain, on the way up Moriah, Isaac asked, and Father, I see the fire, I see the wood, I, I see the knife for the sacrifice, but where is the lamb? And Abraham answered him, saying, God will provide for himself a lamb. Now again, if you know that account of the event in Genesis 22, you'll know that it wasn't a lamb that was provided by the Lord on that occasion, it was a ram, it was a fully grown sheep. And so the ancient Jewish rabbis wrestled with that. Said, well, was Abraham wrong? Was he guessing and just guessed wrong? Or was he speaking as a prophet? And they concluded, well, he must have been speaking as a prophet. And so God has yet to fulfill what he spoke through Abraham the prophet. That God was yet, had yet to provide a lamb for the sacrifice for his people. Each Passover, every Paschal company sharing the meat of this sacrificed lamb would be reminded that there was yet to come a lamb of God that Abraham had promised, or rather that the Lord had promised through Abraham. Well, here as Jesus begins his public ministry at the beginning of the Gospel according to John, the prophet John the Baptist declares, there he is. Behold, that's the Lamb of God that Abraham spoke of. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of the Lord, promised by Him that He would provide for His people. There is no other way to have your sin taken away. It is only through the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Only through trust in Him and not in any work of our own, not in any ritual that we do, as profound as the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is, the sacrament doesn't save us, it's Jesus to whom it points that saves us. Put your trust in the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. O Lamb of God, indeed we praise You that You are a Savior to Your people. We thank you, O God the Father, that you have sent your Son into the world, that he might indeed take away our sins. And so we pray indeed that our sins would be taken away by him, and that by the working of your Holy Spirit we may worthily serve and glorify that Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. For we pray in his holy and precious name. Amen.